live. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Strong Tea. I'm Vicky. And I'm Katie. And if you haven't joined us before, welcome. Please do check out our previous episodes. And if you haven't joined us before, we're a podcast with a bit of a difference. So what we talk about the topics that we think people should be learning more about, definitely talking more about, and to make them less taboo. A lot of the things we talk about, people tend to stick their heads in the sand over, and we want to stop that from happening. We want these topics to be out there. We want people's stories to be heard. And that's the whole vision, mission behind Strong Tea. Uh, myself and Katie, we started this journey wanting to learn more about some things that we thought or considered taboo. And we have had such a learning journey with it all. Um, we have met some incredible people. We have had some fascinating guests on here. And today is no different. But before we introduce you to our fantastic guest today, what are we, what are we drinking? Madeline, what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking, it's a tea called Spice Bengal, and I became a bit obsessed with it, and I used to order like six boxes at a time on Amazon, and Monday was bank holiday up here in Scotland, and I just had this mad frenzy cleaning out my cupboards, and I came across the box, which I didn't know was there, so it was a really nice find. So, so has this reignited the, the spark now? You're going to have to go yes, on Yes, I'm going to have to order another six-pack of tea, right. nice. <laughs> What does it taste <laughs> like? It's a bit like a chai tea, it's very cinnamony, and ginger, and warming, mm. and it's nice. It's a comeback. Chai is making a comeback, isn't it? It's good. Nice. I, that sounds that sounds like my sort of tea. I might have to give that. What's it good. called? It's, Bengal spice. Yes, yeah, celestial tea. It's called Bengal spice. It's got a picture of a tiger on the box. It's very nice. Ooh. See, look, if I buy any more tea, I'm pretty sure my husband is going to kick me out. <laughs> me and my tea, he'll be like, just I can't take it anymore. So I'll yeah, have to sneak <laughs> in the back door. But yeah. <laughs> Um, today I have gone for a Wild Woman Tea Club, um, a Pick Me Up Cowboy, which is a nice. de-stress and balanced tea, which has got apple, pumpkin, orange, carrot, turmeric, cinnamon, cacao, marigolds and cloves in. So yeah. it's best for hormonal support, mindfulness, anti-inflammatory and focus, which is perfect. It's perfect. Mm. And it smells and tastes amazing. So... Yeah, I'm all good with that. What have you gone for, Vicky? I've gone for my Yorkshire tea, but it's multi biscuit. Mm. It's a multi biscuit flavour. Okay, you haven't had one of those for a while. I know, I know. Did you find them in the back of the cupboard? No, they're at the front. I've just, I've just been picking around it because it's just such a whole rounded. It, it just, yeah, and it stops me from picking out on the biscuits because it tastes like biscuit. So yeah, does it actually stop that? Yeah, it does for me. I mean, don't get me wrong. If there was an open, pit, you know, biscuits in front of me, I'm going to snaffle them. Come on. Like yeah, no, fair enough. I, but it stops yeah. you opening them in the first place. Exactly. If I have to go downstairs and then open it again. I'm, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. That's a good shout. Maybe I should, maybe I should try that to yeah. deal with the sugar cravings. That would be good. <laughs> right. Before we talk about biscuits all day, I get to introduce our incredible guest today. And my goodness. Isn't she incredible? Um, Madeline Black is joining us today and she is the courage cultivator. And my goodness, there is not a more appropriate phrase for her if we'd have come up with something ourselves. So I'm so glad you've uh, you've coined that. <laughs> um, I'm going to let Madeline tell her story, but she's a speaker, a podcaster, an activist, an author, a patron at Say Women and at Justice Is Now UK. She's an ambassador for freedom abuse. She's a storyteller at the Forgiveness Project. 
She's a TEDx speaker multiple times. And if I can just catch my breath, she's also a counsellor. There's almost nothing this woman can't do. So I'm very, very pleased to introduce Madeline Black and have her on the show today. What I will say just before we start, and I asked Madeline to tell us her story, there are some trigger warnings involved in this episode, including those for rape and sexual assault of a minor, torture, abuse, eating disorders, and also suicide. So if you are triggered by any of those, I would switch off now. And please do also reach out for the appropriate um, channels if you do need support. So Madeline, without further ado, please can you tell us your story? Sure. So as you gave all these trigger warnings, I can tick every single one of those in my story. Um, I was just, I guess, 13 and I had a night out with a friend that went very wrong. We did, I guess, what most people do. We went and bought alcohol in secret and we lied about where we were staying that night. And I got really drunk because I'd never drunk before. And we were taken back to my friend's mum's empty flat by two young men that were on our table and to cut a very long story short, the two of them raped and tortured me over a four to five hour period. It's just the most horrific uh, experience that I'm sure many, many people just can't even imagine. You know, how did this transpire over an evening? I mean, obviously, if these guys were taking you back to this flat, there was some sort of element of trust and sort of familiarity there so did you feel did you feel safe in that first instance well at that point I was very I was legless and I had been thrown up so I don't know if there was any trust on my behalf because I was pretty you know almost unconscious by that, that point I knew one of them they lived next door to a girlfriend at school so I kind of knew one of them I didn't know the other one they were both um American they were sons of diplomats and they went to the American school in North London and which is where it took place so uh, I, you know, I don't think I was at the point of knowing if I trusted them or not by then. I just obviously needed to get back somewhere. And in terms of the experience itself, I mean, it's anything like this is incredibly, incredibly traumatic. Can you just talk us through that evening and what actually happened and how you came out the other side the next morning because I think a lot of people experience these things quite differently. Yeah, um, well, I don't want to go into too many details of course, people, of course. but um, I just really naively thought they were bringing us home and naively thought, because I'd been sick, it was all over my clothes, they were just going to, as they were taking my clothes off, I thought they were just going to put me in the bed, you know, let me go to sleep and then they would go on their way, but it became apparent you know really quite early on that actually that wasn't their plan I don't I'll never know if this is what they set out to do that night or whether it was just an opportunity they took advantage of but they separate us into different rooms my friend was in a different room and it really just took place in that one room and it was only really in the morning when I woke up that I realized she was now next to me in the bed that um she hadn't been touched and I was the only one that had been attacked. So, yeah, people or readers like to send me all their theories that she was part of it and she planned it and was in cahoots. But I, I really don't think that was the truth. I think I was just easier because I couldn't fight back. Initially, I did fight back and then it became more violent. So in my head, that stayed with me for a long time. I thought, well, if I didn't have you know, fought back. That was really good English for a writer, isn't it? If I didn't have fought back. If I didn't fight back, then it would have been, you know, less violent. So I always thought 
that was part of my fault as well. I should have just let them do what they did. And after a while, that's exactly what I did just to get it over and done with. I just really, um, I left the, the scene of the crime. I just floated out of my body, whether that was a conscious decision at the time, I don't know, or whether that's just what our bodies do in times of, you know, absolute trauma because it was overwhelming. And I now think when I look back now, um, if I had stayed in my body, I don't think I'd be here. I think I would be dead. I think don't think I would have survived it. So I know now from studying as a psychotherapist, but also many other people's stories, that under extreme stress, we can just get out of the way. So I was kind of there and I kind of wasn't there, which then also made it very surreal for when all my memories many, many years later returned. But once they'd left, we woke up, we just really both decided that we can't speak about this because already I was thinking of all the victim blaming and I was only 13, it was the late 1970s, but I thought, well, we'd get the news agent into trouble because he sold us alcohol. I'm sure he wasn't even meant to have alcohol in the news agent, but he did. Uh, I'd met boys, you know, I was drinking, uh, we lied about where we were staying, it was before mobile phones and, you know, find my phone. So my parents said I didn't have a clue where I was. So I just thought I'd get into trouble. So literally just went our separate ways and somehow I was able to numb out enough, push it away, just get dressed the next morning and go to school and not speak about it for about three years. It took me to really tell my parents. I'm not going to bang on and on and on, but I think what you've just said there is so interesting in that you were drinking, you would get other people in trouble. Therefore, it's, you know, you almost felt like you not you were to blame but there was oh, very much the women were it <laughs> yeah. was that it's the women's fault do you see what I mean yeah no I felt really guilty and I thought it was my fault I thought I brought it on myself you know what did I expect really this was going to happen if I behaved in that way but I was already being fed those messages and this was before social media so it was already ingrained in our society all those years ago well you know what did you expect you got drunk and went back to this empty flat with them but yeah I never my alcohol, my clothes, they never invited that in, never. I know now it was never my fault. It took many, many years to work that out, but I know, yeah, that wasn't my fault. And they threatened you before they left, that's right. They did, it? yeah. One of the ones which I guess I call the worst one. Um, in my mind, I kind of really feel like he wasn't as human, if that makes sense. He was more animal than human. He wasn't really developed as a human being. He had already stabbed me and he said, if I speak about it, then they would find me and they would kill me. And knowing what he had done and looking into his eyes, I thought, actually, you could be capable of killing me. And so that was enough of a threat for me to decide to keep quiet. So tell us, that must have been absolutely terrifying. I mean, at any age, but at the age of 13. So tell us when you returned to school and when you went home after that can you just explain what the aftermath was like because I imagine you couldn't tell anyone so you were harboring all of this inside I was it was a tricky situation at the time at home because my mum was unwell she was bedridden so I was able I could hide it from her because I only saw her when I literally went into her bedroom but I over the years I guess shut down but because of the age that I was you know, I could have just been a grumpy teenager. I just didn't really communicate. I kind of stopped eating, became quite silent, really. And um, I'd been in hospital when I was 11 when my mum was ill at that point. I'd had an epileptic fit, but they think it was caused by the, the worry. So I think 
I later on um, attempted suicide when I was back in hospital with that at just nearly 14. They it was like really lazy medicine, I suppose, or because I didn't speak about what was really happened. They just assumed it, I was carried on from when I was 11. And it was all the concern and the anxiety of what had happened to my mum that caused me to have this uh, epilepsy and then suicide attempt. So I just think they focused more on my... Um, behavior you know they never really asked me any any questions you know what happened to you rather than why are you behaving like this why are you rebelling so yeah what what we don't speak about is it's got to come out of our body somehow so it came out but yeah it was it's amazing what you can just stuff down and live on autopilot and just become they, they used to nickname me the ice maiden my family before they knew what happened so you know they just when I was in hospital because I applied for my notes when I was writing my book they just hit me down as a troubled adolescent with eating disorder with anorexia okay. I find yeah. it so disturbing because we're so hell-bent on putting labels and making it an easy option to say that young people or you know even grown-ups are troubled or this instead of having the patience and diving underneath the surface that perhaps maybe something else is going on yeah I hope now I mean this was the late 1970s I hope we are better informed about trauma and the impact and the signs you ought to me now it must have been quite obvious but I can understand how they linked those two things together and came up with five you know and they had a two and two together but it yeah they didn't see the full picture but I wasn't then able to tell it but I just I was too traumatized I wasn't I wasn't thinking I should tell someone you know it was just stuffing it down was my main aim really so how did you cope I mean obviously there was the anorexia and so what was I mean obviously the thinking is so on behind it is probably a difficult one to try and break apart in in this amount of time that we've got in the episode but how did you cope with all of that pent-up emotion and trauma I don't really think I did cope I think that was part of the problem I think I just turned to things that would help me numb out and not think so the anorexia was never really about my size or what I looked like it was just something I could control so I couldn't control the darkness and the depths of despair and not wanting to be alive feelings and I smoked a lot of dope I drank so anything that would just take me away from my head I didn't couldn't really remember all the details then I couldn't really remember what happened and I undermined it a lot I didn't even know if it was really rape or not because I didn't have very many memories at all they were very partial memories mainly because of the trauma and because it had I had been drinking as well so I just did my best just to get through every day with trying to remember as little of it as possible if that makes sense talked so much and you know obviously your experience on that night and then the years after with the sort of aftermath of that was incredibly traumatic time but you've talked so much in your book and also um on the forgiveness project and also your TEDx talks about forgiveness and I think this is such a massive thing I want to get into because I find it so fascinating that you are able to have the courage to forgive what those people did to you and I think it's something that maybe not that many people who have had something traumatic happen to them actually achieve so can you talk us about talk to us about that journey um what it was like getting to that point and how you got through that yeah, so I guess it was never my intention. <laughs> I never wanted to forgive them because I really 
hated them and I was filled with rage and anger and revenge and I plotted all these horrible fantasies against them and I really kind of say I was an accidental forgiver I, I didn't research it I didn't think oh, forgiveness is the way forward that's what I have to do to really heal so many of my memories returned when my basically my eldest daughter turned 13 I was studying psychotherapy and I was doing loads and loads of personal development so everything was getting churned about inside so everything that I had depressed inside of me you know one day it's always going to come back whether we think we can push it away forever or not it's we have to face it eventually to really get through it and um it was near to the end that my therapist suggested to me, you know, maybe they weren't born rapists. And I just thought, you know, what a ridiculous thing to say. How could he say something so stupid to me? You know, of course they were born rapists. They were evil animals. But then I started to think, well, actually, you know, I don't think that they came into the world like that. And I, it really just sent me on a journey of wanting to understand and to yeah, just know where did it go wrong? How could it change uh, so dramatically for them? Because they were only about 18 or 19. They weren't an awful lot older than me. And I just wondered, well, what had they seen? Or what had they heard? Or what had they experienced to think it was okay to dehumanise and degrade me in the way that they did and be so violent towards me? When I worked at a counselling centre, my manager, Anne, was a midwife for years and she told me that, it always, always stayed with me, that she had never met an evil baby despite delivering thousands of babies. And that one sentence just went round and round in my head, you know. And it's true, you know. <laughs> you look at a baby, there's no, I don't think there's any evil in there. So I was on this journey of inquiry and I just thought, I deserve the peace, you know, I will, I will never forgive um, the act of rape, and I'm not a forgiveness preacher, I don't tell everybody the only way to heal is to forgive, you know, that's not my journey, but for me, uh, it just made sense, you know, not to, I, I just, I started really, I guess, to feel compassion in my heart when I discovered or decided that something must have gone really wrong in their life, that they, they weren't in a good place with their core, their horror, the goodness that we all come into this world with. And I just really felt compassion, which surprised me. But then I saw with forgiveness, I could take it further and choose to forgive them. I didn't have to speak to them or meet them. I could make that decision very quietly, you know, in my heart. But it really cut those chains, I guess, that tied me to them or tied me to the past and yeah, it set me free. I just thought, you know, if I hold on to all this anger and all this hate and all this revenge, it's poisoning me and my husband and the kids that I very nearly didn't have, you know, it took me years to come over my, get over my fear of being a mum and childbirth. And I just thought, I, I deserve peace. <laughs> I don't want this hanging over my head for years. And it was me that was creating the battle. I had all these, the fight inside of me against them. They had, they had no idea. So, yeah, I decided for me to, for my future self or for my children, um, I had to let it go. I had to get to a place where I realised what I see now is just pictures. It's not happening anymore. And if anyone's listening and can't understand, this is years and years and years of therapy. It's not an overnight thing. You know, I, I've came to this decision after decades of not just talking therapy, 
therapeutic therapies, body therapies, alternative therapies, a lot of work. And I just thought, well, this is like my my final piece of my jigsaw that I can choose to forgive them just to accept it. Um, no, I can't change it and just really let it go. On your TED talk, you said something that really stood out for me when you were talking about that path to compassion and forgiveness. And it was pity that you pitied them. And, you know, imagine what they must have been through in order for them to have done what they did. And that really stuck with me um, because what an incredible way of looking at it. And yeah, it, it just, it, it stood out for me during that talk, which if, if you know, completely recommend our readers, uh, our listeners to, to watch it because it's hard hitting. I mean, it's the, it's about 25 minutes long, 20 minutes. The only, I think, 11 or 12 minutes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 full of everything. It's mm -hmm. heartbreaking. It's shocking. It's liberating. It's everything. And I think it's probably one of the biggest lessons that I've ever learned in just 10 or 11 minutes. It was just a fascinating insight into what you've been through and how you've grown from something utterly traumatic and mm. horrific. Yeah, no you, question, sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, that's what I was talking about, the compassion that I felt in my heart, because I think, you know, I've done a really good job of draining my swamp, you know, living my life mm. as best as I can. But I think, I don't know, this is just my thoughts, for someone to live with what they did to someone else, that's mm. not an easy journey. You know, they've got, if ever they're conscious about it, they might never be conscious. And even then, if they're not conscious, it's going to impact on their life in some way you know, whatever they turn to, to help them cope with not looking at what they've done. I think to live with what you do to other people must be hard as well. I don't, how would they ever figure mm. themselves? Yeah. You, um, you've written a memoir called mm. Unbroken and yeah. I can't imagine what it must've been like to put that down in writing, what you experienced and what you went through. Do you find it, do you find it difficult? Do you find it therapeutic? You know, what's the result, what was the response to the book when it was released? Uh, yeah, it was. It's quite old now, or about six years old. And yeah, I've always just had really great feedback on the whole. It, obviously, it's the occasional one star. But what happens then is I get this wonderful army of supporters that then will then go and uh, attack the one star person for saying whatever the, they think it is. But you know, it was very therapeutic to write it down. Originally, I was just going to write my story down for me. And it was suggested to me about four years prior, I started to write my book that it would be a good idea to write my story down. Just that night, what happened? And I just had no chance. And that process to write 12 pages took me about four, it took me about four years, four and a half years. And then it was used at a workshop. It was suggested by a teacher that I go to. And um, when I decided to write it, it was literally just, it's the words spilled out and, in Glasgow, there was a Forgiveness Project event, and they're always in London. It was with an incredible woman called Marianne Partington, whose sister Lucy was murdered by Rose and Fred West. Mm. And just listening to her and being in the audience, and she emanated this piece, and she'd been going in, into prisons for many years, sharing Lucy and her story and her forgiveness with the, the West as well. It just did something to me it was really powerful and I bought her book which is called if you sit very still beautiful book and in it she wrote now you must speak and I just thought oh, maybe I could maybe I could share my story and and then I thought well, maybe I'll just write my story down as well and literally the moment I thought that 
I always say I vomited my book <laughs> because <laughs> the, the words just poured out of me. And literally in about eight weeks, I'd written 70,000 words. You wow. know, at, at night, I would see all the chapter headings and I'd sit down at my computer, my little office and just just write. It was like enchanted fingers. The words wow. just flowed out. So I guess it was ready to come out. Mm-hmm. And once I'd written, I thought, this is a bit like a book. And then I thought, oh, maybe I could get a publisher. And I had no idea what the system's like. And now looking back, I know someone or something, some entity was supporting me because in about eight weeks I had got a contract, you know, three months, I think, uh, which is unusual in the publishing world. So I was very lucky to be traditionally published. Um, So I have friends that took like 10 years to get publishers or many, many books stuffed in drawers that forgotten about. So I was very supported. I don't know why, but sadly, my book will be evergreen, you know. I don't know when we'll ever live in a world when there's not sexual violence against women, gender-based violence. I would love to think I have three girls that they will never know about it, but well, their children might never know about it, but I think that's maybe a bit naive to think that really. Um, so I think the more we speak about it, the more we can bring oxygen to it and air our stories. If you're able to, then um, this feels like my journey now. This is my my duty to really share my story, to help other people find their voice and shatter the shame and the stigma and the silence. Because as I said, my second TEDx is called Why I'm Shaming Shame. The shame never belonged to me. The shame was always theirs. But I carried inappropriate shame for far too many years. And most people I know that message me privately will say, you know, um, I can't like your post on your public Facebook page or whatever, because somebody will then know that I've also been raped or I don't want my family to know or I don't want my partner to know. And I think we're still carrying all that shame. It's it's not our shame. And that's really hard. Mm. I will put all the links to your book on our bio and on our social media um as well but I guess my question is related to that because obviously with your story out there how did you approach what happened to you with your daughters how did you kind of even start that conversation about what happened yeah so I always wanted to be very honest because you know me lying got me into serious trouble so lying is one of the things I hate and they're very they know that I said I don't care what it is just just be honest you know tell me the truth it doesn't matter I'll still love you um so as as little as they were I always told them that um two boys hurt me very badly when I was a teenager and kind of age-appropriate language and as they got older they, they know about consent, they know about rape, they know about domestic abuse, they, they know about sexual violence. And um, before my book was published, they knew I was writing my story and I said, would you like to read it before it goes out? You know, here's the manuscript. So Anna, I think, she's my eldest, read the chapter about her because she was my firstborn, which I thought I would never do. Mimi, which she does to all the books, read the very last chapter. And Layla, who wasn't even 13 yet, read the whole thing, which I thought was very wow. brave because... <laughs> You know, they maybe didn't know all the details of what they did to me. But I said, look, whatever you read, look at me now. This is me. I'm okay. You know they don't kill me. You know I survive. And I don't just survive. I I think I thrive now in life because I just... I was just got to a place where I thought I'm just just determined to really live my best life. I really don't want this to dominate me or hold over me, have a hold on me in any way. How do you think what happened to you um how did you stop that 
affecting the way that you parented, especially with girls? Because I can imagine for people that are listening to this that may have experienced sexual assault, rape, anything traumatic like that, maybe it spills over onto the way that they raise their children because of the fear that's associated with it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so I I have a beautiful husband. I've known him for 40 years since I was 17. And, you know, I I really thought I was okay. And I remember he was changing Anna's nappy when she was a baby. And I just got this overwhelming panic that he was looking at her private parts and changing her nappy. And I realised that... um, quite early on, if I wasn't careful, I could transfer all my own personal fear into my children or into my relationship. And I had to really work out what was appropriate parenting, because it's normal to be scared for our kids anyway, but we are fed a lot of fear. Um, And I had to really work out, you know, my fears, were they real or were they not real? Was, Was I justified in being paranoid about him opening up her nappy and I wasn't because he's he's absolutely fine um so it took me many many years but I realized my fears they were all based on already what had happened so the worst thing had happened or they were based on maybe what could happen so I started to see my fears really a part of my imagination and if I learned to stay in the here and now which has really been my job for life not to go back and not to go forward stay present I'm really okay but I saw a lot of my fears projected into my children. Um, one of the stories I always tell is when Anna was going to high school and she wanted to take the bus with everybody. And I said, not a chance. I'm going to drive you every day, you know, overprotective Jewish mother as well and a trauma- traumatized Jewish mother. I said, no, no, I'm going to just drive you every day to school. But she kind of said, oh, whoever wants taken the bus, you know, whatever. So she took the bus and then I just drove behind the bus for about a week. And I just thought, you're crazy. You you are going to infect their minds with your own fears. And from then on, I just thought, well, I struggle to have them. I want them to be independent, fierce, spontaneous young women. So you have to be very careful what you wish for, because I've got three very strong, independent, you know, ferocious young women. And if I do what I'm doing now, then I will smother them and I will hold them back and they won't develop in any way. So... You know, I have to let them be. My youngest one this year has been studying in Philadelphia. She's currently um, left Guatemala and she's in El Salvador and she's going on to Nicaragua. And I think years ago, I just would have been too paranoid. And she's having a time of her life. You know, she's loving it. And that's that's what life's about, isn't it? We've... If you've listened to our podcast before, you'll know that our guests have had some incredible um stories to tell after initial trauma and initial things that they've been through and on a couple of episodes we've talked about post-traumatic growth or post-trauma growth do you think that that has happened to you do you think that growth that new almost evolution of who you are has happened as a result of this absolutely I mean I think um you know, we never know how strong we are until we really find out how strong we are. And I think we're all so much stronger than we think we are. I, you know, I never thought I would ever get over what happened to me, let alone speak about it, write about it, be on TV, radio, podcast, whatever. I never thought I'd tell anyone. So that surprised me. I think my 13-year-old younger self would have been like, no way would you ever do that? So yeah, definitely, I think I have post-traumatic growth. Um, 
just before I wrote my book, I was reading another book called Super Survivors, which is co-authored by two men. And I can't remember their names, but it is a really good book. And it's also, you know, people that have gone through trauma and they've overcome and they're making a difference. And um, I wrote to them, I say, is it genetic? You know, can we get this super survivor gene passed on from our parents? Because my mum had her neck broken in an operation and she really healed herself. And my dad was a Holocaust survivor who had lost all of his family. They were all murdered in the Second World War. And they both just got on with life and they, they lived life. And they said, but they don't know yet if there is a gene, there's not enough research to show that. But he said, without a doubt, you witnessing your dad um, coming to this country, creating a business, meeting your mom, having five of you, loving life, refusing to be also identified by being a Holocaust survivor, that without a doubt would have had an impression on you. And I did, I used to think, you know, if my dad can get past all of that, surely I can get past one night. That Surely that's got to be, and you shouldn't ever really compare yourself to other people's trauma, but I did as a child. Surely losing your mum and dad, your brothers and sisters, your littlest brother, only six, all gassed in the chambers there, surely that would be worse than what happened to me. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm born to super survivors, definitely. Wow. Oh, my gosh, that's some strong DNA you've got there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's that's something else. Um, with that aside, I mean, obviously, with you having um, incredible role models to look up to and that support there, what would have made a difference for you at the time? Because obviously how your body manifested the, the, the trauma and what happened, what advice or guidance would you give to someone who's been through that? What would have made a difference to you? Definitely, if I had spoken about it straight away, if I was able to find the right person for the right support and not being too terrified to speak, or, you know, I now go into schools and share my own story. I think if I had heard someone speaking uh, like I do, and I thought, she looks like she's survived it and she's okay, you know, maybe I'll be okay, or maybe I could speak to someone about it. Um, Just more awareness that uh, less victim blaming, less rape culture, knowing that it was never my fault. Just somebody, maybe even at school, a, a guidance teacher, support worker, maybe in the hospital, someone saying, listen, I think something's happened to you. Do you want to tell us? Can you write it down? Can you find another way to tell us? Um, somebody really drawing it out of me because <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't speak. I literally was like this, like a lump in my throat constantly. How... What do you think the answer is with regards to the stigma and the shame? Because I think anyone that knows or listens to the sort of media sees that actually the number of rape convictions are incredibly low. Um, and only this week we've seen across social media um, about a certain GB News presenter and an accusation um, made and he's gone on to then say that this person is a psychopath and you know obviously there are two sides to every story we don't know what the situation is but this person that now has made the accusations is it's all over social media this person being shamed for coming out and saying this happened to me you know and I feel shameful for it if, if people see this that has happened to them, surely that shame spiral is going to become worse and the stigma is only building, even with people, incredible people like yourself who are sharing their stories, trying to 
break that down. It's almost like with social media, it's being built back up again. What do you think the answer is? Good question. I don't know. Sometimes it is just exhausting. You know, I try to share current stories of rape and sexual violence, just cheerful stuff I do, isn't it, on my public page. And I can type rape news into Google every day. I can't tell you how many stories come up. And that's just in my local area. Then if I go to the UK, then if I go global, I could pick so many stories to post about. And it is, you really do get um, fatigued with it all. You think, well, is there any point carrying on? But there's always a point. There's always, it's just a slow, slow chipping away at society saying, nope, you're, you, you're not the, in the wrong for being a victim. It was never your fault. You are right to bring this forward. And the more of us that shine light in this darkness, it, it can't exist, you know, because I didn't hear the part of the whoever calling who the psychopath. Now, I don't know that's that end of the story, but yeah, I just heard the accusations. So I don't know all the details, but uh, yeah, it's never, ever, ever the victim's fault. So you just, I just need to, and I'm not alone. There's many of us that speak out now, silence breakers. We just need to keep reiterating our message and putting it out there. And the more of us that join our army, the stronger we get and the more voices become a choir. And yeah, we are getting heard. You know, yeah. I think the Me Too, hashtag Me Too wasn't a moment. It is a movement. I think it really inspired many people to find their voice because there is, safety in numbers you know the amount of people that shared their story for the first time it was incredible the ripple that it had globally how it impacted people and yeah I think we just need to keep uh, going whatever the social media is going to do I funnily enough when you talked about that and you said about the silence breakers there's actually been someone in the last week last week or so who has shared her story on social media and she posted a picture of herself up with a glass of champagne saying celebrating because my rapist got nine years yes I've seen that on Twitter yeah young woman. and and someone responded and was just like how can you celebrate that and she said do you know how awful my life has been since that happened and this is getting justice and it's almost like that person who made that comment was still trying to shame her yep. yeah. even and- at that point do they know she would have had her mobile phone taken away from her? Do they know she would have reported this about five years ago and, and it maybe took two or three years to get to court and there might have been cancelled dates and, you know, the rear scheduled so many times and do they know how re-traumatising it would have been to go to court and to speak about all the details and the chances of getting a conviction were very small. So, yeah, I would be celebrating. I was celebrating with her. I was <laughs> cheering her along. I know. Yeah, you're right. People still try to shut them down and shame them. And yeah, but I'm hoping on her tweet, I saw it on Twitter, people will jump in and say, why are you saying that? (laughs) But yeah, there's people are so brave behind their keyboards, Mm. really, aren't they? Where you can't see them in person. They're just keyboard warriors. And Mm. I just block. I don't even engage with them. Just move on. It's not worth the energy, is it? No, it's not. (laughs) I think the visibility is a massive thing, as you're saying, because even in the States with um, Trump now having, because he wanted to quash and completely defame the guilty verdict that he was given for sexual assault, and they've chucked it out saying, no, 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 you're you're guilty, you live with that. And I think having something that visible, that high profile, is nothing but a win. And it's those brave people that put themselves in those positions yeah. of you know it's got to be terrifying because not only is the you know those leaders um leading a bunch of 
people who are completely unpredictable, you know, that I'm not just talking about the Republican Party. I mean, the followers of <laughs> yeah, Trump, you know. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, the reporters as well trying to attack, attack, attack. And the fact that she's still stoic and sat there and go, no, he pays for what he does. I am, I am here. This is going to happen. Well, what is really sad is in America, he's still eligible to apply to be president again. And yeah. you, you <laughs> now know you are an abuser and yet that's actually okay. You can still be your yeah. president. And yeah. that's the culture element. That's the culture piece, isn't it? It's it's not just teaching boys about consent. It's not just empowering the women. There's something in between going on that is quite toxic and needs to be looked at. And I don't quite know what that is, apart from being quite a misogynistic, toxic kind of place. I can't put my finger on it. It's just calling it out and calling it out and calling it out. You know, it took me forever to really speak mm-hmm. out, but I'll, I will never be quiet anymore never do you think if you had known more about um the people that attacked you do you think you would have pursued it at to a further stage to sort of a conviction stage had you sort of got a you know a few years on when you were a bit older and a bit more confident your story started to come out do you think you would have pushed for it if you knew more about them you know what, I don't like to look back and regret or say I should have done this, I should have done that. I, I did it the way I did it and I can't mm-hmm. undo that. So I can't really answer that question, to be honest, because it, what's the point of going, I should have done this and I should have done that. That's not what happened. You know, yeah. this is how this is how it played out. This is how I walked it through. And, and that's what I did. Yeah, in an ideal world, I would have spoken about it straight away, would have got them banged up. They would have got 20, 30 years each. Uh, that's never going to happen. Never. Yeah. So I, I can't go back and have regret. You know, this is... This is how my 13-year-old self dealt with it. I think what's important is where you are now and mm. all the work that you're doing. So tell us tell us about your life now. Tell us about all the wonderful things that you're doing because obviously you're a psychotherapist, so you're helping other people. Are you doing specific sort of um, therapy, specific sort of clients, or is it just anything goes? Well, it's maybe not the best of timing. Just before lockdown, I decided to stop working as a psychotherapist because I was being asked to speak more and more. So just in February 2020, I was at a big speakers conference in Namibia, which was amazing. And I was a closing keynote and I was getting all cocky thinking, oh, look at me, closing keynote. That's one of the most prime positions for a speaker. And then lockdown came in and a my whole diary emptied and I didn't have any clients to do but then the situation at home changed and my mum had to move in with me for whatever reason and she's still with me for a couple of years so you know life has a way of working itself out if I was still traveling the world I wouldn't be able to care for her as well so I have a very um bad attitude to business if somebody asks me to speak I'll go speak but I don't really go looking for work or chasing it I'm very fortunate most often I will speak somewhere and then from that audience someone will say I heard you speak here could you come and speak there and and that's how it's always gone so I just uh just let it happen do what you do what's the best place you've spoken what's what's been the most powerful experience for you oh it was the best and the most powerful but not because it was the most powerful um the very first time I was asked to speak and get paid because you know in the beginning we don't often get paid as an international speaker it was for UNICEF in the Maldives I'm not gonna lie it was a tough gig I opened up (laughs) my little villa straight onto the beach and then I went to check out the bathroom and it was outside and I thought I could quite get used to this this was quite nice but then what happened it was so we spoke at a school we spoke on tv there there was a community event and the main reason we were there was 
for it was actually about five years ago, four years ago today that I was there in July. Um, we spoke at a women's empowering event. So they all came from the main town, Malay, and everyone thinks, you know, the Maldives is what a beautiful location, it's heaven, you know, paradise. So much domestic abuse, men have so many different wives, so much rape, no counseling, no refuge, no support. I would never suggest doing this, but a woman who was in the audience stood up and said after I had spoken, hands up if you've ever been abused or raped, which I would never suggest anyone doing. I think, including the speakers, 98% of the room stood up. Oh, wow. my goodness. It was really, and that was like, you know, I think I'm here in wow. paradise having a fabulous time, but it was just, even now I think about it, I get the, the hair standing up my arms. And when I had got home, the woman who had asked me to speak there, who used to be the former health minister there, Mari said to me that when I left, it created like a little mini Me Too kind of movement and women were starting to share their stories. And even though they don't have the support systems in place, they were now saying, if you need to come speak to us, let's just, you know, as a group, let's speak together. So it was amazing. I just feel like we lit a little fire and they're just carrying on lighting their fires and, you know, it's just spreading that way. So that's why I think um, courage is contagious. You know, if one person speaks out and hears that, it gives them the courage to speak out. And then it's like the domino effect, you know. So that was, yeah, obviously a fabulous place to speak at for many reasons, but it was the most moving place I've ever spoken. That's incredible. I mean, that's that's legacy right there, isn't it? And I don't I don't want to ask you to say it word for word, but again, from the TEDx talk, can you just tell us about the best revenge? Yeah, so I decided, um, you know, when I met Stephen, I was very clear that I couldn't be a mum because I was terrified. I thought I'd have men at my cervix and my feet and stirrups and be out of control because my fears were being around men mainly, my safety and being out of control. So all those three elements were really magnified in childbirth. I thought that was, you know, the worst thing I could do. And then I thought, well, if I don't do this, they've won, you know. I am really giving them my power and control over me and they don't even have any idea that I'm doing that, which is a bit daft really, isn't it? So I just came up with this plan that I call my best revenge, that not only was I going to become a mum, and I have three gorgeous girls, I can say they're gorgeous, I am their mum, but you know, I thought I'm going to live my life. I very nearly lost my life. They made about three attempts to kill me. And I just thought I was meant to be saved. I wasn't here to live my life like insipidly. I want to really live. I want to be alive and I don't want to be... Um, affected by this trauma forever I really need to clean it up and live my best life so the trauma was really holding me back from living my life I had to really work it and work it and work it which I've done and continue to do that's incredible I mean your story of it's not just strength but it's resilience it's empowerment it's forgiveness stubbornness as well (laughs) Stubbornness. stubbornness is a great quality I often get told I'm stubborn <laughs> um, but it's just it's just incredible to see how at such a young age your life could have been completely ruined and it obviously was for a short time but you've you've overcome it and given your strength to so many other people and I think that's just amazing um we ask all of our guests on the show uh, for a final sip and that's your opportunity to do 
to sort of say anything that you'd like to leave with our guests, anything that you want them to remember, anything that you think that they should know, any any words of advice that you can give really that you think leaving your legacy right here. So another little bit of legacy then in my second TEDx, which was just in this little office here, it was a, it was a viral one, not viral, a virtual, that's the word, virtual one in lockdown. I talk about being interviewed by the fabulous Sir Trevor MacDonald, but really what happened afterwards was incredible because one of my friend's aunt basically um, spoke for the first time about being raped as a teenager. She was 81, she'd never spoken about it before, and she ended 64 years of silence. Wow. So really what I want to say to people is that it's never too late to find your voice. It's never too late to go and get support and share your story find someone that you trust. If you can't find someone that you trust, find um, a friend. If you can't find anyone, write your story down. Stop denying it. Stop undermining it. Stop pushing it away. You have to feel it to heal from it, but it is possible to really heal from trauma and find a way through it and live your best life. Wow. Man, that's yeah we, that's proper we, choked me that has. yeah <laughs> oh every time I think about her she makes she really does it makes me yeah. uh yeah it does I just think wow and all those people it makes me think about that that haven't spoken yet that are still locked in by shame and locked in by guilt and fear and are silent they can't find their voice and you know you say I'm courageous but it really was me standing on the shoulders of other women that I heard share their stories and it's like the ripple effect I think well they've helped me I need to pay that forward and I know now um another amazing story a woman who contacted me I met her at a conference her therapist told her to read my book or watch my my first TEDx and now she's written her book and she sent it to me in the post the other day and she said she never would have done that if she hadn't you know read my book or listened to my TEDx so these she's now going to inspire other people and people will read her book and so it goes on you know just paying it forward I love this it's just knocking shame way out the park and turning it into empowerment owning your story and influencing other people to get their lives back that lady 81 years old has lived the majority of her life under a a, a weight and yeah it's it's just phenomenal what you do so thank you so much for sharing your story and your wisdom with us as well we will put the links to the book and the two tedx talks on all our um advertising and marketing and on our website um but thank you again madeline it, it's yes, just ma'am. been incredible um and listeners if you like what you've heard please feel free to support us go to our website we have a supporters page where you can buy us a tea a coffee gin tonic and tonic would be nice yeah yeah that would be nice yeah now that the sun's trying to get out it'd be nice to have a pims or something oh yeah not aperol not a fan of not that. aperol not an aperol no, fan no no but thank you for joining us listeners and we will be back next week with another episode but for now it's a goodbye from her oh and it's goodbye from me you've mixed that up there i don't know i can't you know i can't deal with this and i'm very tired so (laughs) we'll just have to go with it (laughs) thank you again take care thanks everyone for listening Bye. bye